Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our rock. Please would we hear him speaking to us now by the power of your Holy Spirit. In his name we pray. Amen. I am what I want. Yeah, maybe we wouldn't put it quite like that. That's a little bit blunt, isn't it? But why does every single website and app ask our preferences? Experience that. You can have it this colour. You can have this bit over here. You can have notifications or you can not have notifications. Do you want cookies? Do you not? You know, it's all gathered around us. Why does every advertising campaign just notice how often the word you is in adverts? If you're listening to Spotify and a really annoying one comes on, it will say, you know, what is your goals? What do you want? You can be in charge. You can be the owner of some Lurpak butter or whatever it is. You know, just all of them are saying that all the time. And the reason is, I'm afraid it is like a psychology thing. It's because it's an empowerment word. It makes you think, oh, yeah, yeah, I am. Thanks very much. Yeah, it is about me. Even though it's butter that's telling you that it's about you. Our culture loves to affirm people's identity and individuality. And the way they do that is in terms of our preference, our wants. One of the very worst things that we can do is not acknowledge fully something that someone wants to do. Even worse, limit something that someone wants to do. Lots of people have begun to notice that political, social, sexual, international liberty has begun to mean freedom to do whatever we want. It's almost become what it means to be a person, to be someone who wants and is unobstructed in pursuing that. So what if the things that we want are evil? Verse 6. These things happened as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did. Heard a few weeks back, chapter 8, Corinthians' confident and technically correct attitude to all the feasts of the idols that they used to worship. In that chapter, chapter 8, Paul talked about neglecting the effect that that confidence had on other people. They were so concerned about the freedom they had to do stuff, they weren't concerned about what the effect was on other people. And then chapter 9, Paul gives himself as an example of giving up his rights for the sake of other people instead of insisting on them. But as we saw last week, at the end of that passage, he talks about it not from the perspective of the benefit for others, but the benefit for himself. This athlete training that we all actually need to adopt the longer that we're Christians. This is the last one in 1 Corinthians for a little while before we have another break for harvest and things like that. Uh, When we pick up again, we're actually going to talk about eating in church about Holy Communion and more generally about worship. Uh, But the passage today has some callbacks to what we've been thinking about before, weeks and weeks ago. Uh, You can listen again, actually, on the website now. I've put all the sermons up from the previous. So if you missed one or if you're like, what on earth was the bit at the beginning? You can do that if you want to. It focuses in all the callbacks to everything that's come before on 
the Corinthians' decisions affecting their walk with Jesus? How is what you are deciding to do, how is what you are wanting to do, affecting your own walk with Jesus? And up to this point, I don't know if you've noticed, he keeps saying, don't you know, as if they should. But it's different today, chapter 10, verse 1. He says, I don't want you to forget, or, or better really, I don't want you to be unaware. So it's, here's some stuff that they might not know that actually they really need to know. And whenever Paul gets into the Old Testament, which is what he means about our ancestors, he's talking about stuff that is true for all time. It's relevant for us now, and it will be relevant for us until Jesus' return. We don't often think of the Old Testament like that, but when Paul talks about it, he is always meaning this is timeless stuff. Part of the reason we struggle to see it as timeless is because it goes completely against the wisdom of our age and our society. And maybe we don't want to be influenced by what everyone thinks. But something I've been struck by as I've been meditating on this is even if you define yourself against that you thing with adverts, so you say, oh, adverts don't affect me. Like, that, oh man, like I worked in advertising. The people we found it easiest to get in the heads of were the people who said advertising doesn't affect them <laughs> because advertising is designed to affect you. If you think it doesn't affect you, then it has. That's the point. We're swimming in this stuff. The teaching from Jesus through his apostle today, as so often, won't just slot into what we already think. And it particularly won't if we're living at this time and in this place. So when Paul says, I don't want you to forget or I don't want you to be unaware, he means us too. And we're going to take the first 11 verses, one big chunk. Here's the thing that Paul doesn't want us to be unaware of. Ancient church exposes deceitful desires. Ancient church exposes deceitful desires. Another thing that our age has real difficulty with is the idea that the people who came before us are us. We like to drive a really big wedge between the people who lived then and the people who live now. That's the basis of a progressive attitude to history. If we're always moving forwards, always advancing, we're leaving behind the attitudes and the failings of the past. And if, as has been happening recently, we find ourselves tainted by them in some way, like, oh man, my ancestors invested in slavery, or there's a statue in our town for someone who did something bad. It wasn't bad at the time, but we think it is now. The way we deal with that is not, okay, well, that's us. I guess we need to reflect on ourselves. We're like, oh, pay reparations or tear down the statue because we're not like that anymore. They're not us. Well, Paul has a really different attitude to the people who came before. First of all, he calls them and he doesn't say it explicitly here, but he does in other places. He calls them church, the assembly. They're the same. When we read about the people in the wilderness from all kinds of ethnic, religious, social, economic backgrounds, that's what Israel was at that time, particularly Exodus numbers. Paul says, that's you. That's you, that is. 
And if it was true for the Corinthians, who were not very long ago worshipping Zeus in Achaia, it's a lot more true for us who've been living with 15 centuries of church behind us. But it's not just that these guys are us. This is the bit we may not believe at all. They had fundamentally the same spiritual experiences that we do. So verse one, all of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptised as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food and all of them drank the same spiritual water. For they drank from the spiritual rock that travelled with them. And that rock was Christ. So the first bit of that directly compares the pillar of cloud and fire to the Holy Spirit given at Pentecost and afterwards in baptism. That's why you get the tongues of fire and a cloud filling that room. But it also compares the waters of the Red Sea, you know, walking with a wall on your right and your left, to the waters of baptism that we had two weeks ago with Daisy. Their being baptised into Moses was the way to be part of church at that time. But the whole stuff about the rock after that shows that they were baptised to lead them to Christ. They were baptised into Moses, but they weren't staying there. The goal was to know Christ. At the deepest level, even though almost nothing about wandering around in the desert seems like what we're doing now. Their experience of Jesus was the same as ours. Yeah, the physical form was different. Red Sea, cloud, manna, water from the rock. But the spiritual reality was identical. So this is where the uh, boulder rolling behind them, or some people have it floating behind them. People seriously read this bit like that's what it means. Okay, there are some commentaries that are like, oh, maybe it was like Jesus was incarnate as a rock or something. Or like people just get into all kinds of weird stuff about this bit. Uh, metaphors, figurative language, all that kind of stuff. It's just a way of ignoring what it actually says. And, and that's often where we go wrong when we read the Old Testament. That's why we had the reading from Deuteronomy. The living God is the rock for any church member throughout history. And our day-to-day experience of a rock, particularly when we're talking like bedrock, it's not actually geological surveys or, you know, uh, whether you can scrape a bit off uh, or, or whether you can turn it into iron ore or something like that. That's not what we think, when, particularly when we're standing on a rock. We think about our foundation, what we walk on, what remains solid if there's a flood or subsidence or damp, like that kitchen back there. Have you seen that? You know, that floor is a bit dodgy now, but at least there's rock underneath it. That's what we're thinking. We build on rock or concrete, don't we? 
And that's the sort of rock that's being talked about here. It's not like a pebble, something you trip over when you're on Southwold. It's like Ayers Rock or the Rock of Gibraltar, which John tells me is apparently hollow. But, you know, it, it's still like a fixed and immovable thing, isn't it? You know, the Rock of Gibraltar means you know where you are. It's like a beacon, like a, uh, well, it's certainly our kind of hold in the Mediterranean, isn't it? For like centuries as a uh, British Navy. You know where you are with a rock. And this rock, capital R, it's not just the ground we stand on. He's the ground everything stands on. That's why Paul talks about a spiritual rock. Paul uses spiritual to mean the real thing that is there even if we can't see it. Like that spiritual wisdom from the first chapters. It's from the Holy Spirit, the living God. Now, if you know the story from the wilderness, there is actually a moment where the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus, stands on an actual rock, like a, a big outcrop in the wilderness. And then Moses whacks the rock with him standing on it with his staff. And then miraculously, there's enough water that comes out of the rock to feed three million people. That's roughly how many were there. Paul deliberately weaves together the physical and the spiritual, but not in a floating boulder or like a rock rolling along that talks. Have you seen everything everywhere all at once? No. There's a bit where two rocks have a conversation in that. You can, you can YouTube it or something. Not like that. That's the Not like that. So although we're not eating manna or drinking miraculous mineral water, we're receiving sustenance from Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. The only reason that they ate or drank, literally physically had any food or water, was because of Jesus. And their daily food and drink is compared in a direct way to communion. But even that isn't the only way that their experience is the same. Their experiences while walking through the wilderness are recorded for us to teach us about living as Christians. We can't say when these church members die in the wilderness because of idolatry, sexual immorality, tempting Jesus or grumbling that they're nothing to do with us. The reason we have these stories is to give us a deeply practical, relatable record of the things that are most likely to endanger us as we stand on Christ and are nourished by him. And the reason is something else that doesn't change throughout history. Human deceitful desires don't change. Trying to distance ourselves from the people who go before us is playing into the devil's hands. The most dangerous spiritual position we can ever be in is thinking that what we want is a-okay with Jesus by default. Our culture is constantly telling us in a million ways that if we really, really want something and we can't see ourselves how it's going to hurt anyone else if we get it, it must be fine. That is the one thing 
that everyone who has ever known Jesus proves is false. If we're struggling to see how it could be a problem for us to gratify anything that we want, Paul asks us to look at those stories that we'd rather ignore. In the wilderness, people died because they did what they wanted. If we think even for a moment, we know that's true. In drug overdoses, in health complications, from persistent habits, from eating loads of junk food, from addictions, in all the relational carnage leading to untold misery, from people living their best lives, even when it means abandoning their families or the person that they promised to protect and to love for life. When we read the stories in Exodus and Numbers, we mustn't think that their death was harsh. Right at the beginning, the reason death is in the world is to put a limit on an eternity enslaved to evil desires. He says, no, you're not going to live eternally like that. I'm going to introduce an end to that life so that you can begin a new one. And there's every reason to suggest that those who fell in the wilderness were taken to stop them from living eternally in those evil desires. They were promoted to eternity with Jesus rather than living this sort of half-life for a bit longer. But this is where the warning from that bit is actually more serious for us than it was for them. Because we didn't just die to slavery in Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea. We died through the waters of baptism to sin itself. We don't just eat manna and water. We eat the body and blood of Jesus. The story of Israel in the wilderness teaches us that what we want will kill us if we never challenge it. And that goes for all of us. I'm just going to focus on one of those four things because we might think it's not that big a deal. Grumbling. Grumpy was my granddad's name. And there's a fridge sticker that I particularly remember when I used to visit my grandparents that said, sorry, I've given away the punchline now, but sometimes I wake up grumpy, other times I let him sleep. (laughs) You know, you must have seen it, right? Lamenting the state of the country is our national pastime at the moment. And you've heard me say it. You've heard me do this too. Venting our feelings about how terrible something is in church or how awful our neighbour is. Or how unfair our family are. That's dangerous. Even though it feels good to let off steam. The whole point of being baptised into Jesus, of eating and drinking Jesus, is to teach us to go to war with those deep wants that most often we don't even notice. The Corinthians were making out You've really arrived in the Christian life when you can go back to all that stuff you used to do without worrying about it. And Paul says, no, the mark of Christian maturity is going to war with our natural desires, refusing to just follow what we want. Always asking how we can choose Jesus instead of what we want. 
Anyone feel kind of pretty crestfallen at reading verse 12? If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. I'd love to read something from hundreds of years ago just to demonstrate again that the Christian experience is the same over all this time. This is St. John Chrysostom, who was like, I've got it wrong now, something like 5th century, so, you know, in Constantinople. And he said this in response to this verse, just for our encouragement as we're near the end. We can't say even that we're standing. All of us have fallen and are lying prostrate on the ground. So it's not the season for this word, but for the saying of Jeremiah, chapter 8, verse 4. When people fall down, don't they get up again? Our exhortation is not concerning the not falling, but concerning the ability of those that fall to arise. I implore you, let's stretch out a hand to each other and thoroughly raise ourselves up. For I myself am of them that are smitten and require one to apply some remedies. Do not despair on this account. If you are sorrowful on account of these things, this will be to you a powerful remedy. Isaiah 57 verse 17, God speaking, I saw that he was grieved and I healed his ways. Still John Chrysostom, although we have wandered away to that place where the sheep strayed from his keeper, even there he recovers us again. God is merciful. He is content with the sheep's willingness to be carried. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) So just a final thing, really. This is just one line on the last two verses. Verse 12 to 13. Christ the rock anchors us. Christ the rock anchors us. We can't stand unless we're standing on the rock. Following what we naturally want will lead us away from him. So clinging to him by saying no to our evil desires, by grieving over the stuff that we keep doing again and again, that's what keeps us safe. Ancient church exposes deceitful desires, but Christ the rock anchors us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please, would we go to war against those desires that seem so sensible, so necessary, but actually damage us? Please, would you show us where our wants need to be subject to Jesus, the rock? In his name, amen.